don't know, like landing on the moon or something like that. That, that, was, a, that was a big you know, move, but it took you know, 50, 60, 70 years to get there. So the, the life kind of was more or less stable. The culture was stable for a long time, and then rapid shift. Now it's rapidly shifting all the time, and for all of us, that means that we're constantly trying to think about how to adapt. Um, and we're thinking about this in terms of faith. We're thinking about this in terms of families. Uh, we're thinking about this in terms of what is acceptable and part of the culture. We're thinking about this uh, in terms of our employment and jobs. Job turnover is much higher now than it's ever been uh, because industries change so quickly. Uh, anyone who has kids now thinks about, for example, how much screen time is too much. What age is it appropriate for a child to have a cell phone? I mean, think how... My parents never dealt with that. They never thought about that. In fact, I was allowed to just like come home and like run around the neighborhood until the sun went down and no one supervised me. Like how cr- now it's like my, I put my kids on a bike and I'm like, don't be out of my sight. You know, you're not, you're not, it's, it's unsafe. I mean, it's the same city. I don't know what happened, how that changed, but, but the change is real. It's real. And the question then is how does faith change with that? How do we adapt our faith? Um, and that's the question I, I think we're going to get an answer to today. How do we change faithfully? How do we faithfully adapt to an increasingly post-Christian context, a context that's changing over and over and over and more and more rapidly? How do we do that without forsaking um, the truth? So as we um, encountered this text uh, for, the, for the last time, this section of text, let that sit in the back of your mind. Um, let's read together. This is uh, 1 John two eighteen to 24. Little children... This is the final hour, and as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Yet even now, many Antichrists have come, which is why we know that this is the final hour. They left us, but they were never really with us. For if they were truly ours, then they would have stayed with us. But their leaving made it plain that none of them were really ours. Look, you have the Holy Spirit's anointing, so you all are in the know. I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because you also know that no lie originates in the truth. Who's a liar? Well, anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, the one who refuses to acknowledge Father and Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but the one who acknowledges the Son has the Father too. Make sure what you heard from the beginning stays with you. If what you heard from the beginning stays with you, then you will stay with both the Son and the Father. A little recap. I mean, if you, if you just... If you just listen to that text, you can hear um, John's sadness in a lot of ways because of what's happened in the church. The church in Ephesus was a place where um, the apostle John um, kind of probably started it and, and shepherded it. And then as time went on, other people who claimed to have been from the uh, Jerusalem church, other people who claimed to have known Jesus but really didn't, at least not as well as John did, came in and started teaching new stuff. New, new change, new stuff. Um, and, and, and John uh, was a little bit worried about it, and the, this teaching kind of grew up in the church, and eventually the churches in Ephesus split. They, um, they had a big fracturing, and, and John calls these people who came in antichrist. They were against the real Messiah, against the real Jesus. And we talked about that last week. The real Christ, the real Jesus, the one that John preached, the original classic Christ. He was the one that was real. And these were bringing in a new Jesus, a new Christ, a better, more fun, more palatable, sweeter, more, more, just more fun to follow. Jesus was what they were preaching. And a lot of people went after that. A lot of people liked that. And then the church split. It broke up. And you can hear in this text a little of John's 
frustration and sadness. You know, they were, they were from us, but they weren't really with us. They never were. And now they're gone. And, 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 but you also hear this note of hope. And I want to zero in on just one piece of the text here. Look, you have the Holy Spirit's anointing, so you all are in the know. Um, this, this, this sense that, yeah, there's all this bad stuff that happened, but good news, friends, you, the ones I'm writing to right now, you Christians, you stayed the course, you stayed in, in, in the faith, you have the real truth, you didn't get turned aside, you're the ones that I'm proud of, I love you, and I'm so proud of you, and the reason, the reason you were able to avoid error, the reason that you were able to stay on the course and not get put off the path is because you have the Holy Spirit's anointing. See it in that text. You have the Holy Spirit's anointing. Something special. If you've been in uh, church for a long time, you'll hear people use the word anointing. And they usually, I think, mean something like, like a special gift, right? Like, um, oh, that, that, that guy is anointed, meaning that like, he's really charismatic, maybe. Um, or this person has an anointing for prayer, meaning that this person is, is really amazing at prayer, like they have a real gift for prayer. Well, I, that's, maybe that's somewhere, uh, but that's not really what John's talking about. And I want to show you what he's talking about. I want to show you what this anointing is and why. Why it made these people, these Christians, safe and un- unchanged at, when, when the Antichrists come in. So this word anointing, it's uh, charisma in Greek. Um, it's very rare, actually. Uh, it doesn't get used a whole bunch. In fact, in the New Testament, only right here. And only a few times in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint or the LXX, only a few times is it used. And I want you to see how it gets used. And you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on the Levite's head, and anoint him. Um, charisma there is oil. It's a certain kind of oil. And, and what, um, what Moses is talking about is uh, he's, the command from God of how you're going to make priests, right? Um, these Levites, they're in the priestly uh, caste, the priestly family. They, um, they, they are walking along, and then when they're time to become priests, they get a, a special oil that gets put on their head. And this oil smells really nice, this next test. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. That's New King James language. It just means it smells really great. Um, it shall be a holy anointing oil. Charisma is oil. It's always oil. It's never anything else. Um, and it, it's strange that it gets translated as so many different ways as like anointing or this or that. In fact, in um, the old King James, um, it's translated as unction in 1 John. Uh, you have the Holy Spirit's unction, um, which is, you know, an old English way of saying like a special, you know, oil that, that, that got put on these people. Well, what we see is that, that really when John's talking about charisma, when he's talking about anointing, he's not talking about a special, amazing thing. He's literally talking about an oil. He's talking about the process through which people become priests. And if we follow um, John's theology throughout the gospel and in um, the Johannian literature, we see all the way through that, that John imagines, it's the New Testament, all of it, imagines Christians in the church as a, a new temple, um, and, and Christians are priests in this new temple. The old temple has been destroyed in 70 AD. This is probably written after the, the temple has been destroyed. There is no more temple. There are no more uh, priests, except that Christians have become the new priesthood um, of God, the new worshipers of God. And this is the first thing in your note sheets. In 1 John, being anointed by the Holy Spirit is the process through which a Christian becomes a spiritual priest. Uh, when you're anointed by the Spirit, you're, you're, you become a priest. You become embedded and initiated and deeply set into the truth and doctrines of the church. The Holy Spirit instructs you. 
If you follow the way that John, um, the, the Holy Spirit gets talked about in the Gospel of John, he leads us into all truth. So the Holy Spirit takes people to truth and, 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 and buries them and, and, and surrounds them and, and puts them in and beds them in the church. And through that, people become, Christians become, these priests. Yeah. Okay. What does that have to do with anything? Do you know what it was like to be a priest? It was a cool job. Um, it was neat. Uh, there's actually so many priests in Israel that you only got to do it like, like once every couple of years. This is a true fact. Um, when you, uh, there was like a, there were so many Levites, so many people in the priestly caste, that uh, only a few of them would be in the temple at any given time. In fact, in the beginning of Luke, we learned that John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, um, he got lucky. It was his time to go serve in the temple. It was like a big deal. It was a really exciting time. You traveled from wherever you lived and you went to the temple for like a short period of time, two weeks, a month, something like that. We're not exactly sure. And you got to participate in, in worship in the temple. And it was a, it was a pretty intense, it was a pretty intense, uh, like, thing. Do we have daily life? Do we have uh, the daily life of the priest or is that, yeah? Oh, so you won't, oh, no, we don't. Yeah, daily life of the temple priest. The very beginning, the very beginning is you start out and uh, all the priests who are there have to go through an immersion pool. Um, they, it, this is before dawn. They go in, they, get, uh, they, they cleanse themselves almost like a baptism because they don't know yet who's going to get to do the sacrifice. It's like a, there's like a lottery every day, which is the next thing. They have a lottery for the right of service. So they all get together, all the priests, and they're like, it's, uh, kinda, it's not gambling, but it's a little bit like gambling. Like, who's, who gets to do it? And, who's, and this is something that's really exciting for the priests. They, they, they never, sometimes priests go their whole lives and never get to enter the holiest of holies and present the sacrifice. And so they're, they're looking and they get to see who does it. Then uh, after that, they have to do the dawn patrol where they literally go throughout all the temple grounds and they see, um, like, there's like 93, I think the Mishnah says, 93 special sacred objects. And the priests walk around the entire temple and they inspect to make sure that nothing has changed, that no one's come in and moved anything or, or, or changed anything because if, if it's changed at all, if it's changed at all, the, r- the rituals are ruined. Um, after dawn patrol, they have the ash removal. That's uh, all, the, all the, the ashes from yesterday's sacrifices, which are, um, it takes like all, a bunch of priests to do this and they have a special ritual where they move it off the grounds and they bury it in a special place because it's, it's sacred. And after they finish that, they have to do the three fires on the altar. Altar was huge, 52 feet square, um, if you can believe it, 16 feet high. It was like a huge ramp. And so the, the priests would go up in procession, and, and the altar was so big that it could accommodate three different fires. Um, one was for sacrifice, uh, one was for incense, and then one was like an eternal flame um, that, that, that showed God's light to the world that never went out. And so they had to tend to those things. And then after that, they had the, the slaughtering of the daily sacrifice. Um, this was, there was many sacrifices, but the most important was a lamb every day to, to atone for the sins of Israel. And it took six priests because one would cut the lamb open and drain the blood and the others would hack the lamb into six pieces. And then they would have this really special procession where they would go up and they would, um, and they would put uh, the, in, the, in the fire to, to make the sacrifice. And, and, the, and the, the lucky priest would um, take the sacrifice into the holiest of holies and perform ministrations before God. And then there were, two, um, there were two more. There was the meal offering, which was like a, a first place in the lottery. That's mega millions. That's getting into the holiest of holies. Second place, where you only get like 50,000. That was um, meal offering. And then third place, which would be like you got a free lotto ticket, is a wine libation. And that was like a third sacrifice where they got to pour out a little bit of wine and sip it. That's a lot of stuff. That's an intense day. That has nothing to do with all the stuff that interacting with the people. That's just to get the sacrifices done. 
And every bit of this, if you read the Mishnah, it's like so exact, it's so precise. There's, there's, no, there's no variation here. This isn't like, you know, here, we have a liturgy of sorts here where we kind of do the same thing every week. Nothing like that! That is nothing like that. I did take a shower this morning, but other than that, it was pretty much nothing in common there. I didn't do Dawn Patrol. Perry does Dawn Patrol. He goes and makes sure that the, the grounds are safe. Here's the thing. Oh, so, so let's just imagine, let's imagine that you have a question about God. Right? Who do you ask in the first century? You, you have a question about worship. What's worship? What's it like? What should it be like? Who do you ask? Someone who does this all day. Someone who spends their entire life focusing, hoping that they're going to have a chance to be a part of this right, this ministry, this true worship. These people are intimately familiar. I think this is the next thing on your, on your note sheets. Priests are specially qualified to discern the truth. Why? Because they live lives of attentive worship. But here's the thing, though. They may also become attached to non-essential rituals. So you, you spend all of your time focusing on making sure you get everything just right. Everything just right. Well, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to know a lot about worshiping God. But you're also maybe going to, you're like, you know, you see someone do the, the ash removal wrong. You're like, no, out of line. That's not right. God is displeased. Maybe you become so attached to the rituals that, that you lose something of the heart sometimes of what temple worship is about. It's interesting, interesting that, um, that God judged the temple. The priest did this faithfully every day. And yet somehow Jesus tells us that it became a den of robbers and thieves. Even though the rituals were done properly, uh, something about uh, the temple needed to change and didn't. And as a result, um, the priests failed in some ways in their task. Well, if we um, look at our, our, our text, if we look at our text, we could almost you know, kind of gloss it. We could say, look, you have the Holy Spirit's anointing there in verse 20. And what that might be is it might be you're, you've become priests. You're so familiar with what it looks like to worship God in spirit and truth that you've been embedded in all of the truths. You know all the ins and outs of worship. You're, you're so familiar with it that, that you're, you're unshakable. You're strong. And as a result, you are in the know. Um, that, that's just uh, literally in, in Greek. It's like all, you all know. Um, but it, it's idiomatic, and it really has that sense in English of you're all in the know. You, you, you understand. You've got great knowledge about everything that there is that's important. And as a result of that, because you've been embedded in these, in these rhythms, you're not going to be shaken. You're not going to be moved aside. Those antichrists. We talked a lot about them last week, kind of the, the things that they were doing. And, and you know, you, it's possible. It's possible for us to get this sense that the Antichrists were like these really bad people. Like they sound really bad. They're against Christ. Uh, John's using a polemic there. But I, I, I bet you that if you met these Antichrists, they probably didn't, like, they probably weren't secretly praying to Satan. Okay? They probably thought that they were actually doing something really, really good. They were deceived, I grant you, but they... they really thought they were trying to do something good for the church. Um, we, we know this because people followed them. In fact, we know that for two centuries, um, the church wrestled with the changes that the, the, the so-called Antichrist brought. 
And so if you, you and, and remember, they were from, if you remember last week, they were from the Jerusalem church. They knew some stuff about Jesus. And I believe, I believe they really wanted to see the church blessed by that. I think they came to Ephesus and they saw what John was doing and they're like, yeah, man, that's great, but we've got to update this thing. I mean, this is, th- look, John, great guy. Love the fact that, that you were an apostle and, and that's awesome. But have you noticed what's going on around man? Have you noticed that the, that the, the, the persecution is increasing? Have you noticed that the empire dislikes us and is, 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 is moving us out of the mainstream and starting to vilify us? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that you people are all stuck doing the same thing? And, and look around you. The world is changing. The emperor hates us. The people around us hate us. And it's all because we, we've got to make some changes, friends, so that we can, we, can, we can have peace with the culture. We've got to make some changes so we can reform the church. We've got to update. We've got to renew. We've got to reform. I think that they were really trying to do something good. I think they wanted the church to have a powerful gospel that impacted the culture. We all know people like this. Hotheads. Reformers. People who see that, that things aren't working, that they, they've become stilted and, and, and stratified and, and strictured. And, and they, they're looking at the church and they're saying, you're just like the old temple now where you're, you're, you're so rigid, you're so unchanging that you're, you're getting left behind by the culture. And people out there aren't coming to Jesus because you just keep saying the same stuff over and over. Well, the reformers, they made a big mistake. They told lies about Jesus in order to get people to listen. But you can see that at least, at least their pastoral heart was in the right place, probably. This is um, what we can say about uh, reformers. Reformers are specially qualified to renew the church because they have a pastoral vision. But they are also in danger of abandoning the truth. This is what happened in Ephesus where there was a group of spiritual priests who had the Holy Spirit's anointing who were deeply embedded in the rhythms of the church and the doctrines of the faith. And then there was a group that, that came in and wanted to renew the church and see it change and become vibrant again and, and to see it, it reach out and, and, and bring more people and in the process lost the truth. And when these two groups collided, the church exploded. And John is trying to pick up the pieces in First John and show them what had happened. And is that what's always going to happen? Are we doomed to repeat that same cycle? Because friends, I can tell you right now, the culture is changing radically and the church is trying to find ways to adapt. It's happening in every element of church life and culture. It's happening in all of our personal lives as we try to be faithful as Christians in the midst of of changing times and changing circumstances. It is becoming more and more difficult to figure out what needs to change and what needs to stay the same. And and is it always going to be this group over here, the reformers, and this group over here, the priests, and the priests know their stuff, and the reformers want to make change, and they come together and they blow up, and the church fails. Are we doomed to repeat that? Or is there another way? Do we have a video? Let's watch a video. This is awesome.
Yeah. How cool is that kid with the green eyes, dude? Yeah, it made me want to really go out and buy one. That dude wasn't possessed at all. <laughs> um, yeah, just, you got to love the Transformers. I mean, that, that's from 1984. I was like three years old when that came out. Um, and we moved down here to Mission Viejo in like when I was four or five and um, I thought that Scott, did you see that cool Optimus Prime? Optimus Prime's the red and blue one. And do you see that kid? He like can change him from like a, like a, ro- like a robot ninja with a sword and a laser beam um, into a truck, a semi-truck. Pretty awesome. Um, because if you're a robot ninja and you need to hide, you become a semi-truck. Okay, whatever. That's great. Lo- don't understand the logic. Um, I thought I thought that Scott, um, my friend Scott, uh, had the Optimus Prime because I remember seeing it as a kid. I mean, back in the '80s, man, they didn't make just plastic toys. These things were made out of like die-cast metal. I mean, these things were serious. And I remember um, seeing. Uh, and he says it was our, our friend Travis, um, which I don't know. Whatever. This the shrouds of time. But I remember lusting, coveting Optimus Prime. I mean, this guy, like, like, he's driving along, and suddenly he sees danger, and he's like, that's it, dude. I'm going to become a robot ninja. I'm going to slash it with my laser swords and blow up things with my laser cannons. Transformers 5 coming out uh, this summer. Anyone excited to see that film? Uh, absolutely not. No, wrong. No. You, you have no taste if you're interested in the fifth Transformers movie. I'm sorry. I knew I, I, I became a curmudgeon. It happened. You know, I'm like, get off my lawn, kids. Now, uh, the, when movies come out, I'm like, oh, another, you know, building's going to blow up and some superhero's got the power to nuke the sun. I mean, yawn. Like, I, how about characters? How about dialogue? Remember those things? I, I, now I just, I, yeah, I'm being, I'm, I'm being left behind uh, in the culture, which, which is sad, but, but also inevitable. Um, Transformers. Isn't it cool that Optimus Prime um, can do two things. He's got two modes of being. Um, the Transformers, they're like aliens. They're alien, alien robot ninjas. And they come to Earth because their planet blew up or whatever. And, uh, and they've got to hide amongst human beings. Because they don't want to disrupt our, our, our ecosystem, I guess. I don't know. But so, so what they do is they hide. They're, they're, they, they transform into like, you know, semi-trucks and, and cars. That's the Autobots. And then the Decepticons are cool. They transform into like military jets and like guns and stuff. Um, and I, I, terrible illustration. Whatever. Anyway, they can both, they can, they, they both are able to, to be, um, to fit in and to show and to, and to be a part of the culture. But they're also, they're also able at the drop of a hat at any moment to become these robot ninjas and to take care of business and to, and to change and to, to, to attack. They're both. They live both. They're, they're both, they're both semi-trucks and, and robot ninjas. They can do both. Kind of like this guy. You guys didn't know that Martin Luther was the first Transformer? Yeah, true fact. Martin Luther. You might remember Martin Luther as, if you're familiar with Christian history, as the famous reformer. He was a German. He lived um, in the 16th century. uh, And he uh, began, really, the Protestant Reformation. Um, But, do you know what Martin Luther was before he was a reformer? A Catholic priest. 
He was indeed. Martin Luther, a savvy Catholic priest, too. He was a member of the Order of St. Augustine. The Order of St. Augustine was kind of like the brainy uh, order of the, of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Martin Luther, um, before he became a reformer, one of the things that he did is he um, actually translated uh, the scriptures into the vernacular German for the first time. Martin Luther, uh, and, and he did it not from the Latin Vulgate, but he did it from the Greek and Hebrew texts that they had available. He marshaled all of the original, um, the oldest manuscripts that he could find, and then he translated them into German because he was so passionate for the, the needs of the people that they could understand the text. And yet, he was also a professor of theology. He was a, he was a priest of, of the highest standing. His, his priestly credentials were just off the charts. He, he studied and studied and studied. He knew doctrine. He knew dogma. He knew the text. He knew it inside and out. And, and because he knew it so well, it, it, he looked at the way people were living. And, and he was driven mad almost. Because he saw these people, peasants, living in Germany, being told that in order for you to get to heaven or whatever, you must pay um, priests. You must give them money uh, for indulgences so that your sins can be forgiven. And Martin Luther looked at that and he, saw, and he saw people being deprived of the truth of God's word. He saw them being absolutely overcome by a corrupt and weak culture. And, he, and, and that fired him up. It fired up the pastor in him. He was a priest, yeah, but he was also a pastor. And he cared deeply about these people and their lives. And so he he, expl- I mean, he literally says, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. When he nailed the 95 theses to the door uh, of the church. And from that time on, he was, his life was in danger. I mean, he's the closest thing to Indiana Jones that we have as Christians. That's why he's my favorite Christian. Also, I mean, he had kind of a foul mouth. I'm not going to lie to you. But that's neither here nor there. Anyway, uh, Martin Luther, he, he lived in both of these worlds. He was a priest of high standing. He was deeply embedded in the doctrine. He knew the truth. He read the scriptures. And yet, and yet, he was also pastorally minded. He cared about people. He looked at the peasants and said, they need Jesus and we're keeping Jesus from them because of all the stuff we do. Everything that we do is keeping them out of the church, away from God, and they, they've stopped believing because of our actions in the church. He lives as both priest and then reformer. He becomes a priest former. I mean, come on. Priest formers, more than meet the eye. He can, he, wait for this. This is the last thing in your note sheets. Priest formers take part in renewal like Martin. Yeah, you go ahead. You try to rhyme with Martin. Even harder, try to rhyme with Luther. I came up with twofer. Think about it, though. Like, priests and reformer is a twofer, like Martin Luther. It just didn't, it didn't quite work as well. But my, my, my point, though, is, is, is that Martin Luther knows how to do renewal. He knows how to make change in the church. It's faithful because he's a priest, and yet it's pastorally minded and it's looking outwards to the people who need the gospel, normal folks who need to hear the truth in a new context. Friends, right now, everyone in this church, in this room, who's believed in Jesus is in some kind of leaning more towards reformer or leaning more towards priest. Every one of us. 
meaning that some of us are just fired up about the lost, fired up about people who are in this culture being deceived by um, its sickness and its twistedness. And we want to see them come and hear the gospel. We want to see them know the truth. And that reforming fire, that passion is burning deep, but it, it puts us in danger because we're willing to just do whatever it takes. Throw everything out. Change everything. Whatever it takes. We're going to make Jesus as nice and as palatable and as friendly and as kind as we possibly must so that you'll come in and love him like we do. Some of us are priests. We really like doing it this way. We've always done it this way. We really know the truth. We've studied the doctrine. We've studied the dogma. We've got in. We've, we've, we've really wrestled with the truth and the issues, and we've really solid. And boy, isn't this awesome. I don't want this to change at all, because if it does, we might lose. We might lose the truth. We might lose what's been entrusted to us. We might lose everything that makes us us in Christ. Are you a priest? Or are you a reformer? If you're a reformer, go to school. Martin Luther, notice, notice this. Notice he was a priest first, then a reformer. He, 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 got, he got the dogma, the doctrine. He, he really wrestled with the scriptures and the truth. He understood in a very deep, powerful way the truths of who God is. I mean, if you want a primer for who God is and what God's about, you can look at our, our Constitution. We've literally enshrined the truth about God into our Constitution. It's, it's fairly long, like 18 pages, something like that. But if you really want to start to get to know the basic facts of who God is, start, you know, go and look at that. And then start looking at all the references to the Scriptures and dive into the Scriptures and get deep with them. If you're a reformer and you're out there and you're passionate and we want to save the, save the people and get the gospel out, we need to do whatever it takes. Before you do that, go to school. Get instructed. Become a priest. You've got to be a priest before you can be a priest former. For those of you who are priests, you need to start caring again about the lost. And not just in the, oh, I want people to become a Christian. Yes, me too. Who doesn't? In the abstract. But become willing to say, I, I'm going to investigate. I'm going to look at my life, at the way I do things, the way our culture and our church and our family does stuff. Are, are we really making this something that is going to get people and draw their attention and bring them in? Are we really evangelistic in the, our outlook or are we so rigid in who we are and what we look like and what we do that we're unwilling to get into people's lives and heads out there because we're afraid that if we do, like, we're going to lose something, something, you know, the way that it is. If you're a reformer and you need to go to school, I would suggest um, a small group. Everyone wants me to lead all the small groups. I've tried. I suck at it. I'm terrible. I am the worst at leading small groups. I'm disorganized. I, um, I, I'm terrible at communication. Like, I'm the worst. But here's the thing. I don't have to lead a small group. If you are a person who is deeply interested in going to school and getting to know Jesus and getting to know the doctrine and the dogma of the church, come talk to me and we will figure out a group for you in the fall. We will figure it out. I may lead it, I may not, but somebody is going to do it because it, it's so important. We can't make change 
until we know God and we know the truth about who he is. We know grace. We know justification, sanctification, all those things. You've got to be rooted if you want to make change. Talk to me. And if you're a priest, you need to have a fire lit. And I'm not sure exactly how that looks. I I suspect that um, it means that you need to go meet more non-believers and spend time with them and start to realize how much they need um, God and Jesus in this culture. And I don't know what that looks like. Maybe it's an outreach evangelism-based small group. I I would love to talk to somebody about something like that. Um, Maybe it's just spending time and saying, you know what, I hang out with all these people at church all the time. I'm going to go hang out with one of those pagans, see what they're like, see how dirty they are. They're dirty. They're fun, though. Um, Check them out. And when you do, see if the fire isn't lit just a little bit. But whatever you do, remember, priest formers take part in renewal like Martin. Let's pray. Gracious God, um, we thank you for this place. We thank you for the church that you've given us. We thank you for its fidelity to your truth. Its conviction about your scriptures. Its commitment to your grace. God, I pray that for all of us who are priests, that you will light a fire of reformation in our hearts to care deeply about the lost, to be willing to make changes and, and, and run out to, to, to tell them the good news and, and, and yet to be faithful in the midst of that. God, I pray for those of us who are passionate for change, that we will be rooted, schooled in your doctrine, schooled in your truth, so that we're, we're rooted, we're anointed by your spirit, made priests so that we're not uprooted and turned aside. God, I pray that this place and these people will be your instrument to expand your kingdom, to preach the good news faithfully in a new way, a changed way to a changed world. In Jesus' name, amen.